Can you hear me? Can you hear me? In July of 1991, I got a phone call from my dad. It was awkward because I hadn't spoken to him in five years since he had gotten married in Pennsylvania. I went to his funeral. It was 1986. So I get a phone call from him, 1991. My mom called me. She said, your dad's on the phone. And I thought, that's strange. So I get on the phone and say, hey, dad. And I called him that out of respect, not out of relationship. And he said, see, sure, your brother Brett is dying. And he wants to see you. Now, I hadn't seen Brett in a long time. My dad and had some children. And so I, because I didn't live with him, I had a brother and a sister that I rarely saw in my childhood. But I saw them a couple times, so I knew them. So I knew who Brett was. I had enough relationship to know who he was. And he said, he's dying. And so out of curiosity, I said, well, what is he dying of? And he said, he's dying of AIDS. Your brother was gay. And he'd like to see you. So I was like, I mean, okay, sure, you know. So I showed up to, my dad had moved to, to like near Waldorf by this time. So I showed up to see my dad, my stepmom, and my brother. And at that point, AIDS had ravaged his body. He was so weak and so frail. It was the polar opposite of the last time I remembered seeing him. He was always older than me and stronger, and, and now he looked weak. He couldn't even get up quick enough to use the bathroom. So I spent a couple of days there, and I remember leaving, feeling like, wow, this is, this is crazy. That same year, NBA superstar Magic Johnson had tested positive for HIV, so the whole world was starting to pay attention to this AIDS and HIV. And so here my brother is looking like he only has a few moments left. So I stayed there a couple of days, and then I left. And a few weeks later, I got a call from my dad. And he said, son, Brett passed away. And then he said, and while they were rushing him to the emergency room, he was calling out your name. And I thought, why would you tell me that? Like, is this to, to get some emotion? Is this to, to make me cry, which it did. And so after I got off the phone and my dad said he'd let me know about the funeral, I was thinking, what would he be calling my name for? You're on your way to die. I, was, I had just got introduced to Christianity, so I knew enough that he was in heaven or hell. But I was thinking, what would you call my name for? And then in a moment, all these memories came back of my brother abusing me. I remembered the bathroom. I remembered every smell. I had all these memories that I didn't know. At that time in my life, I didn't even think it was possible to repress tragedy because I had seen enough things and remembered them vividly that I didn't even think nothing like that had ever happened to me. And then here I am, 
I remember all this stuff. And I was bitter. When I went to his funeral a couple weeks later, I tried to pretend like I cared. I was quiet. I didn't say much. But inside, I did not care that he was dead. I felt like he deserved it. And I remember thinking when I was, I was sitting down, I was in the front row, and I was trying to pretend like I was really bothered by his death, and someone had walked up to me to console me, and I just ignored him, and my dad called my name, and so I looked up, and I said, thank you, and I made it look like as if I was grieving, but inside I was hoping that he was burning in hell because I remember what he did to me. And then I was afraid. I was afraid because when people get abused like that, they can... Things happen to them. They grow up, they get confused, they start thinking different things. There's a traumatic imprint that's left that affects the way they are. And I thought, what does this mean for me? What's going to happen to me? Am I going to do the same thing or am I going to have some, some, some struggles because of this? Because I didn't remember any of this, but now I remember all of it. By the grace of God, that. Uh, the timing of the news and the memories were connected to me having my first introduction to Christianity. And it took some time. I was bitter. I was bitter at gay people. I was bitter every time I heard of someone abusing a child. I remember being then, like, I remember saying, if I, when I'm a dad, if anyone hurts my children, I remember saying this to the Lord, Lord, when I'm a dad, if anybody hurts my children, they gone. And I don't care if you're mad at that or not. There's no forgiveness for that to me. Over time, by God's grace, he changed my heart. And I began to see some things differently. But it didn't remove or excuse the significance of the sin done against me. I'm telling you that this morning, many people have never heard this about me. There are people who've known me for years in this room, and this is the first time they've heard this story. I'm telling you this because today's sermon is about bitterness in the family. And I want you to know that the person delivering the sermon is not speaking from a distance. I'm not speaking as one who is going to interpret a passage and be passionate and crack jokes and may even, for some of you, feel like I'm trivializing your pain because of what you've gone through. Oh, no. That's just one story in my life. I want you to know as we go through today's message that I am not distant from the hurt or the responsibility and the consequences of that hurt. Bitterness in the family, I personally believe, is somewhat unique. As a matter of fact, there's a book I'm reading about this. The book is on bitterness. It's called When You've, Be when You've Been Wronged, Moving from Bitterness to Forgiveness. And he has a chapter on bitterness in the family. And he says this. 
The family, I think, is the crucible in which the most intimate and potentially devastating relationships occur. It is the environment in which we learn our identity and our self-worth. It is there that we find ultimate acceptance, emotional care, and nurturing. But because so much is riding on the family, it has also become the place of enormous conflict. Nowhere is reconciliation more needed, and nowhere is it more difficult to attain. As I was preparing this sermon, I realized, wow, this is a big deal. And then many of you said, man, I'm waiting for that sermon. And I thought, Lord, I hope I don't disappoint because the reality is Sometimes we come to hear messages and we want to hear something new and something that, but the reality is a lot of what it means to be a Christian is not to hear new ideas and, and new thoughts, but to take this circumstance and apply it to what we already know to be true. So it's not about preaching something new and giving you something new. It's about reminding you of what is true. Bitterness in the family is unique in many ways. Last week we talked about bitterness at God, and I said at the end of the message that bitterness at God is more circumstantial. It's more God allowed this to happen and we're offended. Where bitterness in the family is more from the repetition of sin, especially when it's someone who's in close proximity. You know, we have people that are our parents our children, our spouses, our siblings. These are all people who we live with. Or we have close relationships. We have coworkers that we're friends with. I had, I had friends I grew up with that I felt were brothers to me more than my own family at times. When it's family, our expectations are much higher than they are for other people. I expect my family or close friends to be a specific way. Someone who doesn't know me, cool. And in the social media world, you post something, someone responds to it, they go after you. Fam, I don't even know you. Like I'm trying to debate, is it worth my fingertips to even respond to this? The time it would take to respond, is it worth it? But when it's someone that I know, it's like, whoa. Because the expectation is different. Bitterness in the family makes unmet expectations, it really exploits them for two main reasons. One, because expectations are always changing. They change because you change. You want and expect, you need, you desire different things. When I was a kid, man, when I was a kid, I was 10, and my mom said, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, sound wave, the transformer. Thank you. Somebody in here can relate. They can. Thank you, brother. That's why, Chris, you need to be in church. The Lord says you need to be here all the time. 
I wanted sound wave. That was all I really wanted. And my mom, and she found it. And I remember opening Soundwave up and playing with it, and they had Ravage was in it and folded up, and you could put it in the tape deck that it had. What was the dog's name? Uh, the bird. Ravage. Ravage. What was the bird's name? Uh, I Laser, Beak. Laser Beak. Oh, Chris, you better <laughs> never miss a Sunday in church. You better never miss a Sunday in church. If you have COVID, you come here, we'll lay hands on you and pray. You better never miss it. I loved it. But if you gave me Soundwave right now, I would be like, uh, thank you. <laughs> My expectations have changed. Expectations are always changing. What also is a challenge when it comes to the family is that we have different expectations for different people. I expected my mom, my dad, and my brother to treat me differently than people even in my own neighborhood. Bitterness in the family is hard to come by in the Bible. Sure, I could have pulled out a narrative. I could have picked up Jacob and Esau and walked us through that narrative and how that played out. But because I did that last week, I didn't want to do that. So I'm thinking, Lord, where do we go with bitterness? What do we do with this? And so you have verses like Colossians 3 where it talks about, okay, what, is, what does it look like in the family? What does Christian activity look like in the family? And it says this in 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents. There was only one dude, the rest of the people went, hmm, it was all women. <laughs> all the wives. It was like, hmm, I hope he's preaching that today. <laughs> Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Then again, fathers, do not exasperate your children and bitter your children so that they won't become discouraged. So you see, in the circumference of these verses, these commands for wives and children and husbands and fathers, it's Bitterness is there. So God understands the uniqueness of bitterness in the family. In Ephesians 6.4, it has similar language. It says, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. God understands that this is a reality. And don't think because it says husbands and fathers don't be bitter that it's not talking to wives and children. There are some challenges that when we're sinned against by family members, they come to the forefront. And I want to acknowledge some of these before we go to where I think we're the passages that God has for us today. Some of the challenges are when you're sinned against by someone in your family, you don't have enough time to recover, especially if they live with you. I see you every day. I don't want to see you anymore, but I see you every day. It's hard to recover because the person who hurt you, you may see consistently. You know, someone that doesn't live with you offends you. I don't even got to see them again. I can make a decision not to put myself in their proximity, but when it's family, I don't have a choice. I may not see you every day, but I may, it's, 
Thanksgiving's coming up. Christmas is coming. Family reunion is coming. And you're going to be there. A death in the family is coming, and you're going to be there. It's hard to recover when you're sinned against by your family. Familial sins, sins in the family, reveal something about us. You may not know this about yourself, but every single person has parameters. All of us have a sin to forgiveness ratio. Every one of us. And there are two main parameters. The potency and the frequency. Let me explain what I mean. All of us have a barometer where, depending on how much you, how great this sin is against me, or how often you do it, will determine my relationship with you. And if we're honest, it will determine whether or not I can really forgive you or not. If the quality of your sin against me is great, and the, or the quantity of it, I can't, can't forgive you, or I have no desire to. You see, we all have a, I'll forgive any sin except these. Bitterness comes as sort of a, a shield to protect us. Bitterness promises that it will not let people walk all over us. It will not let family members hurt us again. It will not let anyone hurt us again. It promises that. And forgiveness, well, it feels like we're telling people, hey, it's okay you did this and you can do it again. And so half of the battle of forgiving people is not wanting to appear weak, not wanting to appear like what you did was okay. What my brother did was not okay. It will never be okay. Forgiveness, you know what forgiveness looks like? Y'all ever seen that, that, uh, that rocket mortgage commercial where the couple is talking to the, their neighbor about the insurance they got and he's in a crane. And they're like, oh, you get this car insurance? And then he was like, oh, this is fantastic. And then he accidentally hits the button and then this big uh, bolt, that, uh, big wrecking ball comes down and smashes their car. And then he looks over at them and they're like, hey, don't worry about it. We got rocket mortgage, we're good. <laughs> Forgiveness feels like that's how I gotta be. Hey. You hurt me, no big deal, fam. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus. That's how bitterness makes us think forgiveness is. They're like, you just got to be like, hey. You don't even got to pay me back, man. I got it. If that rocket's mortgage commercial would have happened in the neighborhood I grew up in, It would have ended with a news reporter. A, 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 a man driving a crane was found in the alley of. 
Forgiveness feels like I'm letting you off the hook. And that's one of the strategies of bitterness. Don't let them off the hook because they will do it again. And you are determined that this is not going to happen again, depending on the quality, the potency, and the quantity. Bitterness actually rejects biblical anthropology. It rejects what the Bible says about humanity. Because humanity are people who sin. But what bitterness says is, you better not do that again. And there's a good chance that many of the things that, and ways you've been sinned against will happen again. Some of them by the same people. It holds a higher view of people than scripture does because bitterness demands not to be sinned against. And this is challenging in the family because your expectations are, how could you say that to me? You know that that would hurt me. Or even if you didn't know, you know me good enough to know, fill in the blank. Bitterness in the family, particularly when they're Christians, it rejects Christology. It has a view of Christ that Christ doesn't have of himself. See, in Matthew 10, Jesus said, listen, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to cause division even in the family between a mother and a daughter and a father and a son and a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. In other words, Jesus said, some people are going to believe in me and some are not, even in the own family, and it's going to cause challenges. Have you ever noticed that most genuine Christians want to imitate God but we end up imitating him as a judge and not a redeemer. Have you noticed that? Like we imitate his wrath, but not his grace as much. And this is just human condition. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sent some of his disciples to go to Samaria and ask, can he walk through to go to Jerusalem? So they go in, ask the Samaritans, and the Samaritans say, who, go to Jerusalem? Nah, nah. The equivalent today of nah, fam. He's not coming through here. And so they go back and tell Jesus, Jesus, they said you can't come through. Should we call down fire and destroy him? You can't make this stuff up. That's Luke 9. The Lord put that in the book. They was like, should we go ahead and destroy them folks? Like, should we? You see, they didn't want to imitate the grace and the, and the mercy of God. They wanted to imitate the wrath of God, and we're no different. We want to imitate God. Look at, the, look at the state of the church today. Everyone's calling out everybody else. Heretic hunters all over the place, questioning your theology, and yours ain't even solid. People are aware of the sins that everybody else commits and want to put them on blast, but not their own. How many times have you seen some YouTube dude do a video about my own weaknesses? but he'll do a YouTube video about somebody else's. We all struggle with wanting to imitate God as judge, but not as redeemer. And bitterness in the family is very unique to that. It really, it's almost like a virus. It, it, it really attacks that and plays on that. 
Bitterness in the family can be an indication of my relationship with God. What this exposes in many ways is that many of us view God as a judge rather than a father. Some of us don't want to admit it, but our own relationship with God is connected to us thinking that he's angry with us, Mm -hmm. judging us for the repetition of our sin. Mm -hmm. And we look at our circumstances and we think this is, we're we're no different than Naomi. His hand is against me. Naomi's not the only one who thinks that. There are people in this room who think that, and I've thought that plenty of times. You're a pastor. You're supposed to be pastors. You're supposed to have done this. You're supposed to. It's like, man. What it reveals a lot of times is our relationship with God, we think, is based on him just being tired of us. And so if we're to imitate God, then we need to judge others then. We forget that God uses the circumstances, even the most disturbing of them, to help us be like him. If you would have told me in 1991 when I was aware of this, that I would be where I am right now and think the way I think now, I would have been like, yeah, whatever. There's just no way. Because for a while, I just couldn't get past the reality of what my brother did, then I thought, how dare you call my name yeah. on your deathbed? Like, I was offended at even that. Like, how dare you scream out to my name? You should have thought about that and thought, this is my little brother. What am I doing? Why didn't you say that then? That's not where I'm at now. I don't approve of it. By the grace of God, my kids are not going to go through it as best as I can. But as we'll see in just a moment, you nor I can really defend ourselves as much as we think. As long as you're around other people, you will be sinned against. And as long as other people are around you, you will sin against them. doesn't mean it's easy to forgive. But it doesn't mean we're not supposed to because what was done to us was really evil. We're going to return to a passage that we looked at briefly in a more comedic way in the first sermon on bitterness when we went to Luke 17. We're going to walk through this a little slower and think, how do we think about bitterness in the family? What do we do? This passage has really become alive to me, one, because I've studied it to explain it, but two, because I finally feel like I understand what Jesus is saying here. These 10 verses to me were always like, how does this all connect? We're going to start reading verses 1 through 4, Luke 17, and I quote, reading from the CSB translation. He said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. 
It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Challenging words. Let's talk about why. The first thing that Jesus starts off with, which I think is incredible, and I'm grateful that he did, is he says, offenses will certainly come. Now, the word translated offenses can also mean temptations to sin, stumbling blocks, enticement to unbelief, or causes of salvation's loss. So Jesus is saying, it is inevitable. Offenses are going to come. Temptations to sin are going to come. Stumbling blocks are going to come. Situations that will tempt you to unbelief are going to come. Situations that could cause you to walk away from your salvation are going to come. He said they're coming. It is inevitable. This is a statement of anthropology. This is a human nature statement. Offenses will come. God is saying this is the reality for life on earth. You will be offended, but you will also offend. One of the reasons why this is important, because our expectations actually want the opposite, <laughs> right? Our expectations, our offenses better not come. Yeah. <laughs> At least certain offenses better not come. When I was in fifth grade, I was, I was like, for those of you who know who this guy is, I was the fairest Bueller of my elementary school. I was just fun, wild. I was that dude. I'm still that dude on some senses. But when I was in fifth grade, I was just in that mood that day. It was a Monday, so I was just cutting up. And my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Henry, he grabbed me as, I was, as we were walking out to recess, and he told me that he was tired of me disrupting the class and all this stuff. And he told me that I was going to be on in-school suspension for a couple of days, and while he was telling me that, he was choking me. He was angry at me. So, I went home after school. I have a black mom. <laughs> My mom was notified that I had gotten in-school suspension. But I told her, I was choked by Mr. Henry. She said, excuse me? I said, I was choked by Mr. Henry, and I explained everything that happened. Next morning, my mom brings me to school. All the kids are coming in to the front of the school, and guess who's standing out front? Mr. Henry. He was about 6'4", big dude. My mom is 5'7". 
she walked up and said, excuse me, are you Mr. Henry? And he said, uh, yeah. And he backed up a little bit. <laughs> and at this time, I'm thinking my mom is a superhero. <laughs> and my mom went off. Don't you ever put your hands on my son again. I don't care what he does. He is my son. Ooh. I was in the back like this. I already was a cool, popular dude. But that day, I walked in school different. Because everybody was out front and saw that. And any teachers that looked at me wrong, I was like, what? Did you want to say something to me? My mom was my hero. Because in her mind, you don't put your hands on my son. That is not an offense that I will tolerate. And every one of us have that standard. But my mom couldn't control whether he did or didn't. Now, we weren't believers then. But I have a feeling my mom would do the same thing today. And in some measure, so would I. Jesus is saying offenses will certainly come. And when Jesus says this, we have to remember who's talking. This is God talking. He understands the varying degrees of offenses. He's not saying things that will annoy you will come. He's not th saying things are going to affect your preferences. He said things that will tempt you to sin and even lose your salvation are inevitable. And then he says something that's both a comfort and a warning. He says, but woe to the one whom, who, through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. When he says little ones, he's not talking about children. To God, we are the little ones. He's talking about people. He's talking about us. He's not talking about our children. That we tempt them. He's talking about grown folk like us. We are little ones. We are sheep. We are children of God. He's saying anyone who tempts these people, you to sin, it would be better for him to have a heavy rock thrown around his neck and drown in the sea. Here's why that's a comfort to us. Because forgiveness feels like we're letting you get away with it. And Jesus is saying, no one's getting away with anything. Right, right, right. There are people that have hurt us that do not care that they hurt us. And there are people that continually do things to hurt us. And they think they're getting away with it. And Jesus is saying, it would have been better for that person to have a millstone. It was an idiom. It'd been better for that person not be born because I'm going to deal with them. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. No one is escaping the pain that they've caused us, especially people who are intentionally trying to tempt you to sin. You know, I watched, you know, I talk about these 
I've walked away from my faith videos. I've deconstructed my faith. And, and these people have YouTube channels where they're trying to get other people to walk away from the faith. And if they don't walk back in and they stand before God, it would have been better for them to have a heavy rock thrown around them and drown in the sea. Because no one can punish like God can. Me and you can cuss somebody out. We can even take their life. But then there's an eternity. Now what he's talking about here is people, people's motive and their intention is to get you to sin. That's a wide range. He's talking about the guy who promises the girl that he really loves her so that they can have sex. That dude is going to stand before God and face eternal punishment unless he repents. He's talking about all of it. There's a comfort in knowing that, that God will redeem the people who are intentionally tempting us to sin, that he will expose and he will judge them. There's a comfort in that. The people that are causing you harm are not getting away with it. Unless they believe in Jesus. But here's the warning of it. It's both a warning and a comfort. That God is going to take vengeance on people who are tempting other people to sin. Here's the warning for us. When we're bitter towards others, we tempt them to sin by the way that we treat them. So we are not exempt from this warning. If I'm bitter at you and I tempt you to sin by saying things, talking about you, being cold to you, having fits of rage towards you, judging your motives, if I'm tempting you to sin and I continue to do that, then this passage will be about us. Bitterness does not just stay put. It defiles Many. So grateful that God is going to take vengeance when appropriate, but we also have to be careful that our bitterness is not causing people to stumble, which it often and almost always will, because you will relate to someone, you will treat someone differently, you will judge their motives, you will have a problem with much of what they say and do, because you're bitter. And if that becomes how you are, I know people who are professor Christians be like, I'm sorry, I will never forgive that person. Man, I hope that changes before you take your last breath. Because God has passages like, if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will yours be forgiven. Bitterness wants to do evil and blind us to the evil that we can do. 
So Jesus says, be on your guard. Pay attention to yourselves. This is not just for everyone else. So let me tell you, if you're thinking of the person that this is about, that's probably the person you're bitter toward. Whoever's in your mind that you hope hears this message is who you're probably bitter toward. Just make sure you hear the message too. Because bitterness will tempt others to sin. And this is why Jesus says, don't let it defile me. This is how you fail to obtain the grace of God from Hebrews 12. He's talking to believers about believers. One of the proofs of that is that he says this, if your brother sins against you. He doesn't say neighbor, right? He could have said if your neighbor, that's everyone, right? But he says your brother. Like-minded, relational connection. If your brother sins against you. That's one of the reasons why I chose this passage. Because Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, be on your guard. Be on your guard. A uh, commentary series that I love to read, Pillar Commentary Series, is it's, my, it's uh, uh, edited by a theologian I respect named Don Carson. He says this about this particular passage. He says, the New Testament does not teach or expect Christians to eradicate evil in the world, but it admonishes Christians, as does Jesus here, to contend earnestly against evil. And above all, not to be a cause of sin to others. The scandal here warned is a two-edged sword, for disciples can alienate others by causing them to sin, but they can also be alienated when others sin against them. In either case, the robe of Christian fellowship is torn. That's why Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins against you, and if he repents, he says, rebuke him. There's responsibility. We tell them, hey, this was wrong. But the purpose of the rebuke is so that the person changes, repents. And then he says, if he sins against you seven times in a day, and it comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. To which the disciples said, increase our faith. Now, a question gets asked about this passage a lot. So does this mean that only if they ask for forgiveness, do we forgive them? I don't think that's the point Jesus is making. And the reason why is because the, the word seven times is not an arbitrary number. Seven is the, the perfect number, the number of completion, right? Seven days, uh, the Holy Spirit in Revelation is called the seven spirits. There's not seven spirits, but, it's, but the seven is the perfect number. It's the number of completion. So when Jesus says seven times or 70 times seven, he's saying it has to be complete. 
It's not about the, the number of times you forgive them. It's really about the number of times you've been forgiven. And this is where our relationship with God really matters here. Because if we're not confident that God forgives us of our sin, it will be difficult to forgive others for theirs. It'll feel much more like a chore. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some sins against us that are significant. And those take more time. But as we'll see in just a moment, the end result must be the same, even if the process to getting there takes longer than other offenses. When he says seven times, now the disciples understood that he wasn't talking about just seven times. They probably all sinned against each other more than seven times of being around each other for three years every day. They understood that Jesus meant it's all the time. It must be complete your forgiveness. If you look at other passages, which we're not going to go to, what Jesus is talking about here, when people don't ask for forgiveness, there's still a willingness to forgive. There's a willingness to forgive, and then there's forgiveness when it's asked. The posture of the Christian heart is that I'm willing to forgive. I'm willing to overlook offenses. And you get to a point where people don't even have to ask you for forgiveness, and you overlook them. You do this with young children. They don't always ask for forgiveness. Some of them don't care to ask for forgiveness, depending on the situation. The last thing they want is forgiveness. They don't even recognize they did something wrong. And what do you do? You overlook the offense. So it's not beyond. There isn't a person in this room who hasn't had to forgive a lot of sin against them just to survive in this world. You just had to, regardless. If he sins against you seven times and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Here's what Jesus is saying. The inevitability of sin doesn't remove the responsibility of forgiveness. The inevitability of sin doesn't remove the responsibility of forgiveness. And this is what makes it challenging for us because we have that parameter, that barometer. Well, it depends on how, how bad it was and how often it happens. And he says here, it doesn't matter how often it happens. What matters is that you often forgive. Jesus doesn't release us from the responsibility to forgive one another because he wasn't released from the punishment so that we could be forgiven. The apostles in verse 5 Say, Lord, increase our faith. I think they realized their responsibility and said, there's no way. I'm sorry, Lord. This, I just, I, what do we say? I can't. I don't have, I can't do that. I think they were like, listen, I, I can't just let people sin against me and there are no consequences. Because forgiveness feels like there's no consequences for what you do. It, it feels like I'm letting you off the hook. But Jesus just said, no, no, no one's getting off the hook. No one is getting off the hook. You're just not the one putting them on it. No one's getting off the hook. 
It's just not your responsibility to hang them there. They say increase our faith. I, just, I think that's, I, I would have said the same. And then let's be honest, some of us feel that way right now in certain situations. Like, I just, I can't, I, I don't, I can't do that. Because there's something that, and, and the challenge is you think that you're actually able to stop certain things from happening to you. And really, you can't. Like, you just can't. We're all like my son who was holding his fist as a baby when he got that, that, that thing happened to him. He had no power to do nothing, but boy, he just had to look on his face like, man, let him touch me again. I was like, son, that's my job. I got you. <laughs> and then Jesus says something that really seems crazy. He said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. <laughs> this is an interesting statement that Jesus says. Because a mustard seed is the smallest seed possible. And a mulberry tree was one of the largest trees that they were aware of with all these huge roots. So Jesus said, if you have as much faith as the smallest seed, you can move the largest tree. Now, some people have taken this to me. So if I tell this tree to like, go, go. Like, we're not talking about X-Files, right? We're not talking about like, no, Jesus is making a point that you don't need more faith. Small faith can do big things. You need to have faith in the faith you already have. You don't need more faith to be faithful. You just need to have faith in the faith you already have. Every genuine Christian in this room and watching on that screen has the faith of a mustard seed. Every single one of you. And let me prove it to you. Because every genuine Christian in this room believes that when they die, they're going to go to heaven because of something that happened a couple thousand years ago, even though you know you've sinned against God consistently every day, sometimes without conviction, but you believe that your faith in Jesus is going to allow you into eternity, which is true because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. You didn't see it. I didn't see it. Every genuine Christian believes that to be true. You already have faith as small as a mustard seed because what we believe in is the most significant thing. The scariest thing is what happens when you die, not what happens while you live. It's what happens when you die. And if I believe that I'm going to heaven when I die based on what Jesus did, that requires faith. Every genuine believer has the faith of a mustard seed because that faith originates in God. Faithfulness doesn't need more faith. We need to have faith in the faith we already have. Like how you trust it when you die, you're going to go to heaven but then not trust that the thing that happened to you, God can use and that you can forgive the other person? How do you pray and ask God for things and expect him to do things and then even be amazed at when he does some things and think that now I don't have the faith to forgive other people when they sin against me? There's a conundrum. This doesn't mean it's easy. Jesus isn't talking about ease. He's not talking about ease. 
quote from the commentary again. It says, Christians, even apostles, are distinguished not by the quantity of faith, by how much faith they have, but by the employment of faith that they use it. Not by the greatness or smallness of faith, but by acting on faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed. This isn't about what you don't have. It's what you've been given that you have to use. And this doesn't make it easy. Some of us have gone through some very serious things by family members or people that were close to us. We've been betrayed. We've been falsely accused. We've been sinned against greatly in ways that we should not have. And God doesn't approve, even if he allows. He says offenses will come, but woe to the person who brings them about. He concludes with a story that, <laughs> that commentators all think is disconnected. Like they think these are three different kind of talks that Luke sort of all put together. But I think it actually is very connected to what he says. But it took me a minute to first see it because I was like, why is he? This is kind of weird. So he says this. After they says, they say increase our faith. And he says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell the small berry tree to move. Then he says this in verse 7. Which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, go at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now I used to read this and be like, uh, I think this is a little harsh, Lord. <laughs> I'm sorry. The Lord is a straight shooter. He's the only real straight shooter. I used to this is a little bit harsh to me. And then I realized what Jesus is saying is that forgiveness is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of responsibility. And what Jesus is doing here is he is attacking, he's attacking a distortion that the enemy allows us to think that where bitterness makes reality unrealistic. You see, bitterness makes us think that continual forgiveness is doing above and beyond what we're supposed to do. Right. It's almost like, I got to keep forgiving this? Do you know like what this person has done? Do you know what this person has said to hurt my feelings? Do you know how often they do this? Do you know how, and I got to forgive this? It's almost like to do that, I'm giving this person special treatment. Mm -hmm. I remember at times, especially earlier in my Christian life, I'd be in certain situations, and I used to be like this, boy, you better be glad I'm a Christian. <laughs> like we'd be in these tense moments, and I'd be like, man, you better be glad I'm, I remember one time I was just, me and this guy would argue this job I used it, and he kept challenging me. And I was really trying to honor the Lord. And I remember walking around like, woo! Man, y'all better be glad I'm a Christian up in this. I, I said this for like five minutes. 
I just walked around like, well, y'all better be glad I'm a Christian in this joint. I wanted them to know the only thing stopping you from seeing me, from seeing these hands, was that I'm a Christian. Now, I did, now, now that would be terrible if I did that. But back then, that was growth. That was growth. Don't judge. If you don't come from that background, don't judge. I ain't you. I don't go, I don't go talk to the manager. I, I, I talk to the clerk. That's my background. I don't come from, well, let me talk to your manager. Let me snatch you over the counter and talk to you. Everybody got different backgrounds, so that's not your background. That's fine. That's not where you come from. That's not your disposition. Cool. That's not who you are. You would rather be quiet and just never go to that place again. I'm going to make sure they don't forget me when I leave, so we're just different. We just have different temptations based on who we are. Continual forgiveness, it feels like we're going above and beyond our responsibility. And Jesus reminds us here, forgiveness is fundamentally what you do as a servant of Jesus Christ. This is what you do as a servant. Ironically, you see in the past, it's, Lord, increase our faith. It's like, give us more faith. And now it's almost like he's saying, well, Lord, give us some thanks for what we're doing. It's like, listen, you ain't getting more faith or thanks. This is what you do. Forgiveness 101 is what you do. God knows offenses will come. He understands that. You see, bitterness makes us think what God commands is just unrealistic or it's optional, depending on my sin to ratio barometer. He says, in the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So he's saying forgiveness is our duty. It's our service. And then he says we're unworthy. Why are we unworthy? Because we sin against God and against others. And even if I've never done to somebody what my brother did to me, I've sinned against people and God way more than my brother sinned against me. He says, you're unworthy. Like, this is a, this isn't something that, like, forgiveness to us is not something that we deserve or granted to us. It's something that has been given to us. So to be a servant of Jesus we give people who don't deserve forgiveness, forgiveness, in the same way he gave to us who doesn't deserve forgiveness, forgiveness. See, if we're going to imitate God, don't imitate him as a judge. Imitate him as a redeemer. Because we lack the ability to be a good judge. I can't punish you. I can't punish my brother. I can hate him. I can do, but I can't punish him. Listen, if you're here and you're listening to this and you're struggling with this, the real issue is not what's happened to you. It's the issue is your relationship with God and where is that? Because God isn't saying, oh, this, is just, this ain't the rocket mortgage commercial. Hey, don't even worry about it. As a matter of fact, come over next Tuesday. Let's do that all over again. That's not what this is. But he doesn't remove us from the responsibility of forgiveness just because sin is an inevitable reality. Now, the process and how we get to that, 
we have to make sure we know what forgiveness actually is and how does that play out. And that's what we'll talk about next week. But for now, we have to remember that we're servants. Now, here's the ironic thing about this passage. When he says, when you have done, he says, does, does he even thank him? Verse 9, does he thank the servant because he did what commanded? So it's like, dad. But you know what Jesus says? I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness. Amen. So we need to have the posture that it's my responsibility. I'm just an unworthy servant. It's my responsibility, my duty to forgive. But God says, I'm going to reward you for that. And the reward isn't just the punishment of the people who have hurt us. <laughs> that shouldn't be the posture of our heart because Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They knew exactly what they were doing. That's not, Jesus didn't mean that. They were professionals at crucifying dudes. That's what they did. I mean, if I, if I listen, I've been a pastor for 13 years, I've been in ministry for 17 years. I know what I'm doing a little bit. It's not like I just got here and like, oh, uh, hey guys, uh, well, uh, oh, uh, can we, Manny, can you lead us in worship? It's like, I, no, there's something, you have an expectation because I've been doing this, I know what I'm doing. These men know what they're doing. People know what they're doing. God knows what he's doing. And so when he commands this, he didn't say it was easy, but he says, this is the responsibility. I don't know anyone who's a slave or a servant that thinks, man, my job is cake. <laughs> Especially if you describe these circumstances. Look, he's been out in the field all day. So he's been, he been tending sheep or plowing. For y'all, that's working a 12-hour shift. And you come home and be like, all right, now I need to straighten up. He says, when he comes in the house, he's not like, hey, you've been out there all day, man, fix yourself something to eat. He says, nah, take care of me, and then go ahead, you can do what you got to do. And he's not like, hey, thanks for doing what you're supposed to do. He says, nah. He doesn't even thank him. We shouldn't view forgiveness as God needs to thank us for doing it. But instead, that God did this for us, so thank him. And we thank God for forgiving us by forgiving others. And this goes after because bitterness it tells us, man, you deserve, you don't deserve to be treated this way. And you're right. But neither do people deserve to be treated the way you've treated them. We don't deserve, God doesn't deserve to be treated. It's all connected. He says he's going to reward us first with a place in heaven, and then he'll reward specific acts of faithfulness. This is why I believe he allows offenses to come, because he knows what comes after those offenses. For those, though difficult, for those who fulfill our responsibilities, namely to forgive other people, even our family members, who crossed the line. Listen, when people cross the line, we have to remember that Jesus hung on two lines on the cross. And that's the lines that cross that matter. The lines that crossed Jesus's body are the ones that we think, I, I need to remember that because they crossed the line. So I need to go to those lines that were crossed and help me because I can't do this. And the only way I can do this is because you crossed those lines. 
That's the only way I could let my brother go. And it's the only way that we'll let others go. For his glory and our good. Father, there's, there's too much to say and too much hurt to speak to. It's not my responsibility or ability. It's yours. And so I just pray, Lord, that with a topic as difficult as this and with the varying degrees of challenges from those in this room that have experienced from family or close friends that we would consider family, Lord, sometimes we feel like we shouldn't have to or they shouldn't have done this and, and we can hold on so much to what shouldn't have happened and it's true. But Lord, you, you say offenses will come. It's inevitable. Stumbling blocks. Circumstances that will cause us to forego our salvation. That will continue to sin. They are going to come. But you've given us a responsibility based on what you've done for us. And when people cross lines, may we remember the lines that, that were crossed or your body hung. This isn't clever phraseology, but a biblical reality. So I pray, God, especially for those of us who are really hurting and, and dealing with the consequences. Sometimes sin in the family has reverberating consequences at last. That your word says it defiles many. Family members hating each other, Christians, unwilling to forgive. Father, even though it's difficult to forgive, I pray that in the next three messages as we focus exclusively on what you actually say and mean by forgiveness, I pray that you would help us get to that place. Lord, if there's anyone here who is struggling with, with bitterness in their family, I pray that they would not be discouraged. It is a process, but a responsibility nonetheless. I pray that you would give us the, the reminder of the duty of being an unworthy servant. And we wouldn't focus on that we should be thanked, but focus on that you said you reward us. That's insane to me. So I pray, Lord, that you would do what work is necessary and the process in which it takes to get there, you would keep us in that in that lane, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, sir. We have, do have a few questions that have come in. Um, and remember that um, you can text those questions into 240-623-8076. Also, um, one announcement that I neglected to mention was that during one another, um, if you would come having read up to page 21, of the bitterness book, um, you will be positioned to participate effectively. So here is uh, one question. You mentioned that uh, forgiveness does not mean that the people forgiven are let off the hook for their actions. What counsel would you give to believers who struggle with God's forgiveness 
and redeeming those who have sinned against them greatly in the past, but have become believers themselves. Say that one more time. Okay, so, so what counsel would you give to believers who struggle with the fact that a person who sinned against them greatly in the past have become a believer themselves? That's a good question. And I had a feeling that question was going to come. So let me make sure I understand it. So basically that person is saying someone has sinned against me, but they've now become a Christian, which means they're not going to be held responsible for their sin against me. Exactly. And so what do I think about that? What do I say to that? Yes. So this is where it becomes complicated because the issue is really more about who, are, who am I as a Christian, and do I care more about people getting saved and being punished for what they've done to me? So really what the challenge is, essentially what, it, what the person sounds like they're asking or really wanting is, I want what they did to be atone, like punished for that. But now Jesus has taken their punishment instead, so they're not going to be punished for that. Now, I don't know what the circumstances are, but there's obviously some, I would imagine there's some relational disconnect in that. So there is already some form of punishment because whatever that sin is, there's broken relationship there that has to be mended. But Christians sinning against other Christians or being forgiven for sin, that's the point of the, like, when your brother sins, rebuke him, right? Like, you... So you want people's sins to be forgiven because we're not about they need to be punished for what they've done. We're about reconciliation. So when my desire is like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling because now they're a Christian, so they're not going to be punished for their sins, we have to evaluate, like, okay, is that really what I want? Like, I want them to be punished for their sin to, against me more than... Jesus taking their punishment for their sin. That's kind of a dangerous perspective to kind of think like, oh, man. And I understand it. I get it, humanly speaking. I get what they're getting at. But I think the point of it is, like, I don't want people to, even though in my, in my business, I want people to, whatever they've done to me or people that I care about, I want you to get everything you got coming. But on one level, it's like, man, they're being saved is the ultimate goal. And God may have used their sin against you to bring them to himself. So I think we have to always investigate what that says about what we really, where our heart is in our relationship with the Lord. And we might be seeing God as a judge more than a redeemer. Like, listen, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. And when he resurrected, he didn't say, hey, listen, Y'all go ahead and judge and condemn the world, and when I come back, I'll finish up whatever y'all didn't get to. That's not what he said. He said, we bring about the message of reconciliation and forgiveness. When he comes back, that's when he's going to bring a judge. But he came as a redeemer and left us to redeem. And so we have to remember that. when he, Yeah, we know that the scriptures say he's going to judge and these things are going to happen, but that's not what he said is our emphasis. He said when he comes back, he'll handle that. So we have to kind of wrestle with, like, why, do, why does that offend me so much? 
that particular STEM issue. Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> a question for clarification. Um, does forgiveness mean reconciliation? We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> but yes, it does. I think it does, but it depends on what you mean by reconciliation is really the real question. Does reconciliation mean we're buddies again? Maybe, maybe not. And we'll talk about that more next week. Does that really mean it like, hey, we'll talk about it. Okay. Because the booklet that we're reading, there's stuff in the booklet that we don't necessarily agree with, right? So I think 95% of the book, I think, yeah, I, I agree with what he's saying. But there's stuff, I, and we're going to talk about it at the one another meeting. There's a few things, like, I don't agree with. I don't think are like, no, that's not, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I think that's adding to what the Bible is saying about that. Um, how do you rebuild uh, or restore trust after forgiving someone? That's an excellent question. The challenge of the question for me is like, I don't know what the issue was, right? So, there, so this is what we have to understand. There are, so when I talk about the sin to, to forgiveness ratio, that barometer, some of the things that we think are sin are not sin, they're just our preferences. Like, let's just, like, I, I use the example when we were talking. Let's say I invite, you, I invite you over for dinner, and you're like, oh, I'm excited to go to Pastor Curtis, and then I have to cancel the last minute. And now you're disappointed. You can be bitter at me for that. But that's not sin. I didn't sin against you. What you don't know is that I had to take my son to the hospital because he wasn't feeling well. I didn't feel like divulging all that information, so I just said, I'm sorry, I have to cancel. I'm not obligated to tell you everything about the situation. It's just like, so you could be bitter at me, and what sin is that? Like, what sin did I commit? So again, it's hard to say how do you build because is this, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, is it actual sin? Because when Jesus said, listen, when he said, if your brother says, I repent, right? When you say, I repent, the words, ah, I'm getting to the next Sunday sermon. Ah. All right, just a little something for the sister over there. She said that. She, 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 she brought it back to that old Maxwell, a little something, something. All right, so. You know, we old school with it. We know what's going on. The words I repent, like that, that reality, right, I think that's very specific. It's not just I'm sorry, but the words I repent are connected to a larger theme of forgiveness, redemption. It's connected to Jesus having to die on the cross. So when you acknowledge, when you say, please forgive me, or I like in other words, and they would say I repent, but we would say, like, please forgive me for, the notion of forgiveness denotes a moral wrong that Jesus commanded you shouldn't do. So when someone sins, that's a moral wrong. When they say, I repent, they're accepting a moral responsibility for that. That's different than like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, there are certain things. I, I've been in situations counseling people. I'm like, Sam, I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I, I don't think you're taking this seriously because you just don't say, I'm sorry. You say, I'm sorry when I accidentally spill coffee on you. When you've committed a moral wrong that Jesus had to die for, you own that. And the language in which you communicate owns that. If you just say, I tell my kids sometimes, son, don't say I'm sorry. They say, okay, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? Okay, sorry, but please forgive me, right? Because I think that, I don't think it's semantics. Now, some might think it is, I don't. 
I think it's, it's intentional. So, so is the issue is, did, is it real sin against you or is it preference? It's hard to say, but I think if you follow the biblical protocol, you should show your brother this fault. Or like take Matthew 7. Okay, you take the log out of your eye. Just mm-hmm. simply, I think that simply just means, hey, listen, I'm aware that I'm also sinful and there are things that I've done. So let me not approach the situation like, how dare you? Let me not approach, because sometimes we approach people like, how dare you? So, you know, it's like, who are you? Like, how dare you? Like, what you talking about? You've caused a little, you know, you, you, you got some carnage in your life, you know? So that, and that's Jesus' point. Like, you got a log in your own eye. Like, from God's perspective, you got a log. I think we approach people like, man, you got a forest in your eye. So, so we, have to, we have to just acknowledge, hey, listen, I've sinned against people, and I've needed forgiveness too. So, but let me show this person that, hey, listen, you fi- so I would start by letting the person know that, hey, you wronged me here and see what they think about it. And one of the questions that I'll ask people is I'll just say, like if someone says, well, I, I'm trying to think of an example of, but I'll ask questions like, so how do you, how do you see your response lining up with what the Bible says? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, because a lot of us just be taught, like, I, tell me where you're getting your response from, because I can tell you why I'm bringing this to you and what Bible passage is motivating that. Where is your response? Well, I'm sorry, I just don't see that. I mean, well, you shouldn't have said, okay, so what, what fruit of the Spirit is like? Where do you see that? Because again, and this is, this is where it's a deeper issue because Christianity has become about what do I theologically believe when Christianity biblically is like I'm, my willingness to forgive and reconcile people to God because I've been reconciled to him myself. Yeah. So now Christianity, particularly in the West, is what do I theologically believe? And now people are calling people heretics because you don't believe that God decreed something. I don't have to believe in that to believe in Jesus. You don't have to believe in some of these things. You need to believe that Jesus is Lord, that he rose from the dead, and you follow his commands. But we get into all this. So now we've lost the very essence of what Christianity is about. It's about love and reconciliation. Now it's about, like, what do you theologically believe? Do you believe in infant baptism? Do you believe in the gifts of the Spirit? Do you believe in the tulip? Do you believe, man... All that stuff is like, man, do you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and you saved? But that's a different conversation. I'm taking y'all down the road. So I think you have to, you have to start with, let me share this with them. And then you, but you have to know that, like, hey, I've, off, I, I've also sinned, and I need to come at them with that walk with a limp that we would say. That's the humility that we come with. All right. Um, this uh, question has some background in front of and behind the question, but uh, here it is. Um, For some people, and especially men, uh, sometimes we don't have the vocabulary to express bitterness to our wives and it it comes out as anger. Um, um, How do you process explaining why you may be bitter to a spouse and work towards productive solutions? So the, uh, the other part is, for example, anger can seem like a flash response to a one-time offense, but bitterness is often a repetition, has a repetition element to it. That's an excellent question. I mean, I just want to adjust a part of it. Sure. I don't think bitterness is necessarily about repetition. I think you can be bitter at one time because bitterness is about expectations not being met. Bitterness is about how I respond to an offense. It can happen one time. Uh, it doesn't have to be repetition, but I think repetition makes it easier for you to stay bitter. So I don't think bitterness is always like, okay, after five times, like I'm bitter. Like you can be bitter. 
Because you can be bitter at something that's not sinful, right? So, but the deeper question is, I, you know, not having the vocabulary to explain how do I share with my spouse, which is, which is a very good question. So one, I think one of the things that you ever you ever done this? You ever ask somebody for forgiveness, right? You ever say, "Hey, babe, I, I just want to ask you for forgiveness for yelling at you," and you know, I'm sorry. We, you know, when I when I brought this up to you, and then you made this comment, and you had a certain tone of voice, and you made this face, and I just felt like you're judging me, and I got offended at that. And you do that, you know, you do that a lot, actually. You you, and all of a sudden, that hold up, I'm asking you for forgiveness is now telling you all this stuff that you've done. And to the person, they're like, what was the forgiveness part of that? Like, what was the... <laughs> I know, I've done that plenty of times with my wife. Sweet, let me ask you for forgiveness. And then the next 15 minutes of just reminding you of what you've done, it made me sin anyway, right? <laughs> See, that's, that's not, that's, that's, that's proud, right? I'm, I, I, I need to recognize that, one, James 4 says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? It is your passions at war, right? So I need to recognize that my response to my spouse, even if I think they provoked it, it revealed something that was there. It's revealing what's already in the heart. Matthew 15, Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when, I, when something makes me sin, what I'm saying is you revealed some expectations that I had that didn't get met. You revealed some desires that I have. And so I think... I would say don't make it, and I know, what, I know what the person's saying, so this isn't really a corrective, but I just want to say this. Don't make it about your inability to use the right language. Just use biblical language. I don't have, I mean, yeah, I'm an orator, right? So I get it. So it sounds like, man, Curtis be putting it together. Plus I rap, so you know how that goes. You didn't tell me. I got a couple bars in there, you know, right? But the reality is, like, the language I'm trying to use, it comes from the Bible. Like, my perspective is not just like, oh, let me be witty. It's like, these are connections I'm making biblically. I understand that even if I don't like it, let me tell you something. So when we, when we and my wife first got married, right, we used to go to this small group. And in this small group, there was this rule, like no matter what happens, it's always the husband's fault. So like we could get into conflict, right? We'd get into conflict. It might have been something my wife just started. And I was trying to be all, babe, listen. And then I may have sinned in my response, right? So we show up to the group, and I'm like, yeah, okay, let's talk. I'm ready. <laughs> So, yeah, Alan's, how's it going? Yeah, I'll, I'll share it first. You know, we got in this conflict. You know, she said this and really did. And I tried to dissuade it, but then I said that, and I'd be like, all right, you know, I'm telling them, waiting for them to go ahead and bring some correction to her. And they'd be like, well, Kurt, what do you think was going on in your heart? And I'm like, uh, I mean, after she said what she said? Is that what you said? Or you, it'd be like, yeah, what was going on in your heart? I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I thought it was wrong that she said it like that. I, I, she, she was judging me. It's not what I was doing. And, but why do you think you responded that way? Do you think that honored the Lord? It was like, hold up, friend. And then so an hour later, they move on, and they ain't say nothing to my wife. And it's like, so we used to drive home, and I used to be like, hey, babe, I don't like this group. I said, and they were my friends. These were my friends. I mean, one of the, guy, the guy who led the group is one of my best friends. He passes the church in Arlington. He's one of my best friends, Eric Simmons. Now, we joke about this all the time now, because I used to say this, man, why is it always the husband's fault in this joint? Like, why, why is my wife never sinful? Like, what are we talking about? Like, she started this joint this time, you know? And be, but it was always that, right? So I'm saying all that to say, in a marital situation, it's very, very difficult. I'm going to touch on this a little bit next week in forgiveness, because, well, I'm, I'm going to save that. I ain't going to give you that something, something until next week. But 
But I think <laughs> I, gave, I gave you some, sis. I gave you some. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm the dude that was sprinkled a little bit on like that. I gave, I gave you some. I gave you some. But the rest of that season, then you got to wait till next season. Gave you a little bit. But, um, but I think you need to use the language. You, so what, I, what, I, what, I, what I've done, when I'm, when I'm on my game, I can approach my wife and say, babe, listen, I want to ask you for forgiveness. And I'm specific. Here's what I sinned against you. Here's what I think was going on in my heart. Let me so it's not about what you did. It's how I responded. There's a, that's a shift. Because a lot of times it's like, let me tell you what you did. And that's why it's hard to reconcile because two people want to tell you what you did. And it's like, but you're ignoring how you're responding. So, so, it, so you got to train yourself to, I sinned, I'm offended, I'm angry. Let me tell you what's going on in my heart. Here's what the Lord revealed. And that's what I try to confess to my kids. Boys, please, you know, that's what I try to do with my, because you have to train yourself. So it's not about, let me be, witty and poetic, it's like, all right, let me just believe what the Bible says about why I say and do what I do, and then let me present that and not make it about what you've done. Because most relational conflict, when you can't resolve conflict, it's because you're trying to tell each other what you did that tempted me, that offended me, and you're not thinking about, I responded that way, and my response doesn't honor the Lord. And that's why close relationships, and particularly marriages, that conflict is there, because to me, it's about me telling you what you've done. And then once you start telling, listen, and we know, once somebody starts telling you what they've done, and if they've offended you, well, look, well, you did this. You've been doing this for years. Now, I remember that one time in 2007. Here it come, boy. The devil be like, hey, give him this one. Remember that time? Give him this one. We'd be in that joint like Michael Jackson. Do you remember the time? Like, remember this? Remember that? Remember that? And now all of a sudden, you just can't even. And now it's like, this is why we can't ever, I can't talk to you. And you know why? It's because I'm trying to tell you what you've done, and I'm not trying to, but, but forgive me. I mean, confession is, let me tell you how I responded. There's a difference. And that's what gets, and it happens to me too. It gets lost in translation. It's not about what you did. It's how I responded. And that's why I'm asking you for forgiveness. It's a struggle. It's real. Because when you're close to someone, you sit against each other a lot. You know, it's, when you're a parent, you know, parents sometimes, we, we raise our kids and we do the best we can. But our kids see, they, they observe us more than we observe them. Because we're everything to them. So when they get older, they, they, they figure things out. They put things together. You be thinking that your kid, you know your kids, you forget they know you. Right. And it's like they say, hey, Dad, I remember when I was 10, you said, he's like, Dad, you remember that? I thought you forgot. It's like, nah, I remember that joy. You know, do you remember the Dad, Dad, Listen, the enemy can sing. Here, hit you with the Michael Jackson song. So. Man, I'm not even going to do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is a man's world. You can really go there with it? No, nah, I was about to go with it. <laughs> oh, okay, there we go. It's the rock, baby. This is what we do. You got to do it. It's the rock. <laughs> All right, so uh, some, someone asks, um, you know, how do you make sure you're not bitter in situations where you have removed access of yourself to someone or to a vulnerable area, um, I'm sorry, Excellent or question. access to a vulnerable area for the sake of wisdom. Excellent question. I mean, we're going we're to get into this in the last three messages on forgiveness, but let me give you one clue that you can tell whether you're bitter or not. Can you pray for the person's well-being? I'm not talking about that they get saved if they're not a believer, right? That's the easiest prayer to pray, Lord, save them. But can you pray, God, give them favor? Let me, with the reason why Jesus said pray for your enemies 
is because the more you do it, you're, not, you're going to grow an affection for them. I tell you what, you, the, the, in the counseling dynamics that I've been in, most of the people that are bitter at each other do not pray for or with each other. It just breaks down. And so one, one way, and again, that's a question that I intend to fully answer over the last three sermons on forgiveness. But one way to at least gauge am I bitter is can I pray? Do I have a desire to pray for this person? Or when I pray for them, it's just hard. That's when you got to say, Lord, please help me. I am bitter at this person, and it's hard for me to pray. And I'm not talking about pray just today general. I'm talking about pray for a specific blessing. Pray that they would get that promotion. They would get things that you and your business. Business doesn't want nobody to excel, right? They want people to pay. They want people to pay, but it wants you. But, you're, but we're just not the ones that can call in the debt, right? We're not the debt collector. And so if I can pray for this person, then that's an indication that, okay, I'm fighting against bitterness. I'm, I may not be bitter at them. Because bitterness doesn't want to reconcile. Now, you can be hurt by someone and still want to reconcile. There are people I've been hurt by that I can still be around. But then there's some people that I don't, like, I don't want to be around, and that's when I got a problem. And, I, again, and there's, again, we're going to talk about that. That's an that's a issue where it requires wisdom and how do you evaluate that. So, but praying for someone is a, is, is a real barometer for that. So... Um, Excuse me, you, you opened up uh, today's sermon with something very uh, personal and unfortunately very common. And uh, so we've had uh, a couple of questions around uh, people who have been victimized by molestation. Yeah. And um, the question is, you know, what does not being embittered against them look, look like? Do you have to allow that person, like, access to your life on a the level of everyone else in your family or like what does it look like to not be embittered against the molesters? It's a really good question. So the, the first question is do you have to allow them access in your life like everyone else? I do not think so. I do not think so. No. Um, and to be honest, and depending on what they did, I wouldn't allow them access to my children until they were old enough. Like, my boys are older now, so I'd evaluate that differently, but I wouldn't allow them access to my children uh, unless some significant changes happen. So some of this question, the answer revolves around who the person is because people change. I've known people who have been brokenhearted for the sins that they've done against you, and that may change the way you relate to them because that's about reconciliation. So if we're talking about someone who just doesn't change and... It just, it is what it is, kind of. I was in the past, you know, we need to get over that type of thing. I, I don't think you need to do that. I don't think that's what, so what is, what is not being bitter look like? I think you don't engage in conversation about that person with other family members that's based around negativity and what they did because it'll just continue to drum up those things. Now, there is a time when certain conversations need to, so, I'm going to jump out there real quick. I'm going to explain this on Wednesday. But in the book, the bitterness booklet, he makes, I'm paraphrasing, he makes a statement that for, when you forgive someone, you never bring up the past and never tell anyone else about it. I don't agree with that. Because there are times when you need to bring something up to help people understand why you're saying what you're saying. Or, so it's not always bitter. And this is, what, this is a false notion. This is what I mean. Bitterness is not I remember this. Okay, I remember a lot of things that happened to me. When me and my wife were first married, it was, it was maybe, we weren't even but a year in. We were walking in Montgomery Mall, 
And we were walking to our car, and I see two dudes coming at me that we, we had a shootout against one another. I shot at these dudes. And so I said, babe, do me a favor. Go that way. I'll meet you. Go, go over that way. She's like, why? I said, babe, I'll, let me just walk that way. I'll meet you to the car. Because I didn't want him to, I didn't want them to see me with my wife. Because they might, it, it's been, I haven't seen them since I shot at them. So I didn't know what was going to happen. So I, but I also, I didn't want them to see me walking that way with her. And then my wife is, she's exposed. So I said, babe, do me, just walk that way. I'll meet you at the car. I'll tell you when you get to the car. Just meet me in the car. So I stayed walking. And as we got closer, we locked, you know, we locked eyes. I looked at them. They looked at me. And I wanted to make sure, like, what were they, they going to do? Like, there was, there was a situation that happened with them that anything could have happened, right? I'm saying all that to say, when we're involved in dynamics with people and we're talking about they've hurt us and we have to evaluate how much we, the Bible doesn't call us to like just wildly expose ourselves to people who will sin against us consistently. That's not what the Bible's saying. Forgiveness is not, oh, uh, uh, I, I don't remember what happened. Like, I remember what happened between me and them dudes. I didn't know if there were reverberating consequences that were going to happen as a result. So I told my wife, go over there because if we get into something, they're not on with them, my wife being vulnerable because then I got to worry about her. If we're going to get into it, let's get into it. Me against y'all two. Let's do it. So I remember a lot of things that happened. Forgiveness is not the absence of memory, right? Forgiveness is the absence of seeking vengeance against the memory. There's a difference. It's not I forgot what you've done. When the Bible says God remembers our sins no more, God can't forget stuff. There's no eternal all time. It's like he... <laughs> What it's, what it's saying is, I, it's figurative language to say, I'm not going to punish you. I'm remembering that your sins are forgiven by the blood of my son. So no, we don't have to. We don't. So what we do, I think, is we want to avoid being in dynamics where the, the hurt that we experience is, is you know, basically continually being brought up in a way that we, because we have to just be honest, sometimes we're just not emotionally able to have this conversation. If I, so if I keep having this conversation, then I'm going to keep the feelings connected to that conversation are going to be challenging for me. So I will avoid conversations about this individual or that action so that I'm not that way. But that doesn't mean I need to be like, hey, when I see him, but it doesn't mean I need to be like, okay, I'm not talking to you because you did this. It might just be, I need to, we'll get into this in the next few weeks. That's, that's all I'm going to say with that. We'll get into that. Forgiveness is not forgetfulness. That's not the same thing. Biblically speaking, it's not the same thing. But people talk like it is. Oh, you brought it up? You brought it up. I didn't forget it. I'm not bitter because <laughs> it's why am I bringing it up? That's the real issue. What do I intend to do with this memory? Is how I can tell if, my, if it's bitterness or not. It's not that I remember it. But we'll get into that the next the next next week in two sermon testimonies. Okay, um, I th this is the um, the last uh, question. Um, actually, no, this is the next last question. Um, is there do do you think it's possible for a person? And this doesn't go into any detail or anything. But do you think it's possible for a person to be bitter against themselves for at us uh, because? of a sin that someone else has committed against them. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you can be bitter at yourself. And, and a lot of times, you know how it comes out? You can't believe you let this happen. And you feel weak. Like, how could I let this person do this to me? 
I can't, and you just can't get over the fact that you let this happen. It's this whole idea of you let this happen, right? Like somehow you should have stopped this or I should have, and you think about what you should have done. Oh, yeah, you can be bitter at yourself. You can be bitter at yourself. And I, and I think, yeah, you can be bitter at yourself. I'm just trying to have, because I, I know what's coming up, so I want to save some things, but sure you can. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's you know, it sounds like, it's, it's still a pride, though. It's still a, it's, it's still a sin issue. It's just directed at the mirror, right? But it's still a sin issue. Like, it's still, um, because it, bitterness at an event that happened, it basically says that God cannot and has not used this event to change my life and help. And a lot of the things that happen to us shape, but even the world says whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? So again, there's a reality to some of these things that when I'm bitter at myself for allowing this to happen, it's like, well, let's talk through that. What do you mean by allowing it to happen? You know, what do you mean by that? Because you could have just been caught off guard. You know, I've heard I've heard of women that go on and that, you know, that what do they call it, date rape or whatever, like with someone they knew. And they thought, how could I, how? It's like, how did you know? How did you know? Or it might have been, man, listen, I was a kid. My brother was 10 years older than me. I was a kid. I was a kid. What was I supposed to do? I was a kid. I got, I mean, okay. So now we. Now what do I do with that? How do I learn from that? How did that shape me and all that? So we'll, we'll get into that. But yeah, you can definitely be bitter at yourself. And I think it's just a, it's a waste. It's not something we have to be because God still uses those things. We just sometimes don't see it because what happened to us is just crazy. And, and we just, so anyway, yeah, we'll get into that. And the final question, uh, you mentioned your brother, and uh, we heard a lot about him this morning. Um, could you share um, what has helped you not to have hatred for anyone in that community and any redemptive hope you have for that community as well, for people in that community? So in 2009, I did a concert down in Jacksonville, uh, Florida, Jacksonville, Mississippi. It was at uh, Jackson State University, and it was Reform University Fellowship. And I was friends with, at the time, he was the moderator of the Presbyterian Church. His name was Ligon Duncan. And so when Ligon heard that I was in the area, he invited me to his church, and I hung out with him for a couple of hours in his study, and we talked about stuff. And, and he gave me this book called The God of Sex. And because I told him some things that I had been seeing in the LGBT community, and I was concerned about as it relates to its impact on the church. And I read this book, and then it led me to another book. And I read stories. I, that book was the first book I read where people who had been in the gay community had expressed what their lives were like and what they had been through and how some of them, how the Lord saved them. Like one, one guy said that he had been a prostitute that had sex with a thousand men, but he became a follower of Jesus. And as I, as I, so first it started with me as a Christian realizing that, because the way my anger was towards gay people, particularly gay men, was to laugh at them for being effeminate. Like I would think that stuff was funny and laugh. So what started was, recognizing that Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And so I had to train myself to not think it's funny because it was to me, because I was like, 
And part of it, to be honest, was a defense mechanism because I was scared I didn't want to be gay. I was scared that, well, you know, sometimes this happens to people and they become gay, and by the grace, that just has not been my struggle. So, but I just felt like I need to start with these people who live this lifestyle. Jesus died on the cross for this. Like, this is, I believe this is a sin issue. I do not believe, whether you're born with it or not, it's something that God says it must be laid down for faith in Jesus. So, so first I started there, and then I started to see and read about people's stories who had really just had similar situations as mine. Some not, though. Some just regular, but, but they, were, they, were, they were believing in Jesus. And so that, was, that started to shift for me as well. And then I started to meet people who struggled with what we now call same-sex attraction and befriend folks and, and develop those relationships. And so it was a journey. Like, and when I say this, don't get me wrong, I wasn't like, like angry, but I just didn't have tolerance for it. Like it wasn't like I care like what you think. I, you know, I just, I would make fun of it. And then over time it was just like, nah, this is sin Jesus died for. And then it became, no, people are actually responding to Jesus. Because for whatever reason, well, I, I have reasons why I think, but I'm going to say for whatever reason right now, the church the church has viewed that sin, and, and in general, we relate to the world as if they're uh, unfaithful Christians, right? So we need to rebuke everyone. They need to go after everyone. But, like, they're not, they don't have the Spirit of God to tell them to obey in certain ways. So, so people should act the way they act. So I stopped being outraged about certain things. And, you know, I remember we went down, I went down to this, by accident, I ended up going to this gay parade in D.C. And it was just wild. We just were going through the city. We thought it was Georgia Ave Day, and we got the wrong week. And so we went, and we were down there, and I was like, I was with two of my friends, and I was like, hey, young, this don't look like Georgia Ave Day to me. And so there was a dude taking pictures. And so I was like, hey, hey, young, I said, hey, main man. This is how we talk in D.C., hey, main man. I said, hey, what kind of festival was this? He was like, oh, it's a gay job. And so I was like, oh, okay. I said, all right, man, we, you know, we out. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, just... Just, just, just realizing, like, and I wasn't even a believer in it, so I was just, that was when I was like, man, look at these bad mission, look at, we was all laughing and stuff, but then later on, it was like, wow, man, Jesus died for these people, this sin, this particular sin issue, and, and if people don't repent, their, their eternal destination has changed. So my heart grew in just, in, in the mission, what we call missiology, like wanting people to be saved, and that's where it, it began to change, so. And there's a lot more circumstances, but that, that's pretty much the, sort of an overview of, of how I began to change. And, and I see people uh, come out of that lifestyle. You know, I've, I've discipled people in this church who struggle with that, and I see them fighting, and I appreciate it. I think that, I don't think the struggle is unique in that, like, but I think, like, it's a challenge because if you believe what the Bible says, that person may be saying, I may be in no romantic relationship for the rest of my life. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a cross to carry. That's a cross, and I've, I've learned to respect people who have that cross. But in saying that, that doesn't mean that I think biblical love is approving of it. Like, that's just, I'm not, believe, I'm not I don't believe that, and you can't, you, I, I've, I've studied the issue more than any other issue, so you can't convince me of that, from the Bible at least. You can convince me of that sociologically, but not from the Bible, and I stand with the Bible, so. So, um, yeah, tough, tough, tough reality. But that was the last question. Thank you all. Listen, I'll be here for a bit. Wednesday night. We're going to talk through this. So any other questions? If you're a member of the church, we're doing one another. I'm leading the meeting. So we're going to talk through uh, pages 1 through 21, essentially. A lot of it is just easy stuff to talk through. But we can talk more about this and, and some of that. But I'm not going to give you the sermon before the sermon. We're going to get into it. 
uh, a little next Friday. Gave y'all that Maxwell already. So, and we'll see y'all, but I appreciate you. Thank you. Love you guys. Thank you for so many of you being here today. It almost feels like solid rock again. <laughs> too many people in here today. I appreciate it. So. Thank you. Love you guys. And we will see you, Lord willing, next Sunday and some of you on Wednesday. <laughs>